Hey, welcome back to the Asod Blocks podcast channel. If this is your first time being here, so we do foundational Torah here, transformational Torah. The point of this is basically to approach Torah concepts and ideas in a very deep analytical way to understand them in context and to sort of show how they operate as a map to describe the very, very uh, most superficial aspects of, re- of our reality and our personal existence and the very deepest inner space aspects of our being your mind, your heart, your 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 spiritual connection abilities, the connection between you and Hashem, sort of map all that out in a very clear way. And so we're really trying to express uh, analogies and ideas that really encompass those uh, often more difficult to articulate areas and aspects of our lives. So this is the Nefshachim series. We're in Perkhes, just starting Perkhes, which means chapter 8 in the first section, Shar Aleph. And it's on page 27, Chafzayin, in the uh, standard edition of Nefshachim. And at this point, um, Rav Chaim Velazhner is kind of going into building out some of the ideas he's already developed, which essentially focused on how we operate as almost like reflective hubs of consciousness inside of the network of existence. And if you think of Hashem as sort of like the all-conscious that sort of floods all of existence with its presence, so each of us acts almost as like a, a node or a hub um, within the network and the framework of being that sort of takes Hashem's uh, consciousness or Hashem's being or Hashem's self. There's no real word to capture that. Uh, and we sort of amplify it and reflect it and retransmit it, or at least we have the ability to do that. And we have, as consciousness fragments, uh, what we call nishamos, we have the ability to sort of choose whether we want to act as a, as a willful amplifier for Hashem's self in the, in, in the network, or do we want to sort of focus more on our own self as as a, as a, our own individual consciousness fragment, and then choose to essentially amplify our own consciousness and our own being for our own self-interested purposes? And when you do that, so then often that leads to what we call egoism and selfishness in such a way that it then actually blocks out larger consciousness. So the ideal here is to sort of recognize that you are a self, you are someone, and you are important, but you are important for yourself insofar as you are operating in harmony with uh, the larger truths that are around you. So when you get too deeply embedded in your own self and you forget that you're part of something larger, that's what we call getting self-centered to the point where now it starts to actually distort and obscure uh, the larger context and, and Hashem uh, insofar as you're concerned. So that's really the, the or what we're going for, that sort of kind of a balance. So in Parakhes, so um, Rav Chaim Velazhner sort of starts to bring in different kinds of ancillary concepts and analogies from the Gemara and from, from the Medrash and other, and other larger discussions that sort of uh, dovetail and intersect with what it is that he's been talking about until now. So let's just read a little bit and see what he does here. So he says, Here, Razal stands for Rav Hussainu means the Chazal or the Chachamim, the people from the Gemara, and he says that they... Uh, there's people from 2,000 years ago and more. They said, they wrote something in, in Baba Basra, but in Yenakruvim, in terms of the issue of the Kruvim. So the Kruvim refers to, on top of the, uh, on top of the uh, Aron, inside of the Mishkan, and then also in the base of Mikdash. So there were these sort of like statuettes that were made out of gold that had wings, and you know they usually translated it, the word in English is the same as the word Kruvim. It seems to be pronounced Cherubim, something like that, Cherubim. And basically, uh, that refers to these sort of like almost childlike uh, figures. Male, they seem to have been male and female, at least, or if they don't look like they're male and female, at least they related to each other in a male-female dynamic. 
and they essentially uh, are opposite each other on top of the Aron, these two statues with wings that are sort of curving over on top of the Aron to sort of like shield it from above. And they would face each other. And this is in the Torah. Parshas Truma describes how you have to, how, how B'nai Israel had to actually design these and put them on top of the Aron in this way. And so the question is that the, the Torah says, and here the, the, um, that's quoted, that what the Nefesh Chaim is quoting here in this piece, he writes from Baba Basra, he says, Ketzad Heinomdin, what was the positioning? How are these statuettes sort of standing on top of the Aron? Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Elazar, so there's two different opinions, Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Elazar. So, Chad Amar Pnehem Ish uh, one of them says that the way that they were standing was it's, they, were, they were facing each other, uh, one towards his brother, uh, meaning one towards the other. Chad Amar Pnehem Labayas, another one says, no, they were actually facing towards the walls of the room that they were in, towards the house, meaning towards the, out, the outer walls. So the Gemara goes on, and then the discussion here goes on, and then the discussion here goes on, um, so according to the one who says that they are facing each other, haksiv ufnehem labayis. So it says that. Um, so so according to the one who says they are facing each other, that's a little bit strange because it's also written elsewhere, uh, much later in Tanakh. It says they are facing the actual uh, walls. So now we have a problem. We have a place where the text says they are facing each other. We have a place where the text says that they are actually facing the walls. So the Gemara says, Lo kasha, it's not actually a contradiction. So the Gemara says, well, it's not really a problem because they're actually two different situations. In situations where B'nai Yisrael were actually uh, doing what Hashem wanted and they were acting as harmonious nodes in the system of existence, then the Kruven would actually face each other and that would sort of reflect that uh, B'nai Yisrael were actually in harmony with existence. Um, and then when B'nai Israel were operating out of harmony and, and were causing damage to the system, then the Kruvim would actually face away from each other and they would face the walls. Okay, and his value in Rashi, Rashi there is one of the commentaries on the Gemara, and he goes on to explain some of these things also further. And the basic concept is that the Kruvim, uh, they represent, one of them represents Hashem, and one of them represents us, B'nai Israel. And so what it's saying there is that when we operate in harmony with existence, then that's sort of like as if we are facing Hashem, which you can think just in general, the Gemara and the Torah, um, they use the concept of face-to-face to express uh, what, what love truly looks like. So um, there's really two different ways you can experience relationships. You can experience them in a hierarchical sort of like a, a master and servant or dominant submissive type of dynamic, which is what hierarchy is about. One person has power, the other person is kind of like on the on the more uh, submissive side, and that's very, very common. Um, it's because power dynamics sort of intrinsically operate in situations where there's otherness. If there's one, if there's two people, and they relate to each other as if they are, you know, essentially not the same person, which is pretty standard and common, so then there's often the possibility and sometimes the accidental infusion of, of um, power dynamics. And so, What's happening is that if you can you can build a relationship where there's a lot of either incidental or even deliberate power dynamics in jobs. Very often there it's obviously embedded and and intentional power dynamics. Um, the, the the tricky part comes when you start having relationships where there's a lot of power dynamics. So the example you know the the Torah's perspective on that is that uh, in in a in a real love relationship it's not supposed to be a power dynamic orientation. It's supposed to be what's called panim el panim. So panim el panim means face to face. So you have to have face to face. Orientation means that you're really there to sort of view each other from across the way as equals and having the the uh, internal integrity and security to actually look straight across into the other person into the other person's eyes 
and for each person to do that from a place of strength and equality, and that way you can really build uh, a very profound connection of two equals who are bridging the distance between them. So that also has a lot of implications as one example in the sexual arena, um, where sexual energy very often, or really intrinsically, has a very intense dominant and submissive type of dynamic, which is why there's a lot of distorted examples of sexual uh, interaction as a result of that, which is a much longer conversation, obviously. But um, sexual energy very often is, it's a hierarchical energy where there's one person is kind of more dominant, and it really can vary, obviously, in two partners who are being sexually intimate. So one can be more dominant in one situation where the other one can be more dominant in a different context sexually. Um, and so that's in contrast to like the connection side of the relationship is not about dominance and about um, submi submission. It's about actual equality. And sometimes in a sexual relationship of love, so there's more um, of a proclivity for there to be sort of like a, a much more not dominance submission orientation in the sexual arena. So really, you could find sort of like that kind of dichotomy where if you have sexual relationships that are not really so much based on love, they'll be much more likely to be power-oriented, not like in an abusive way necessarily, although they could also could be that, but just in more of like a dominance submission type of dynamic. And if you have love embedded and, and invested inside of a relationship, then if there's a sexual expression of that, then very often that will be manifest much more in a, in a very... Um, sort of like a face-to-face, -face, literally, actually physically face-to-face, -face, and, and just much more about creating connections through the physical uh, sexual interaction. So that's the concept of, of panim panim. And so what we're saying here is that, that uh, when the Kruvim face each other, then that means that they're sort of like in a state of actual connection and ahava, which means love. So now, then he goes on. Ulman de amar According to the one who says... Uh, according to the to, and to the text, which says that the that the kruvim would face the walls of the of the room, so So what does that person do with the fact that the text says elsewhere that they were supposed to face each other? So how do you explain that? So the gemara says demitzdade atzdude. So that means that um, so then he goes to explain rashi. It means that there are basically two opinions. Second opinion said the kruvim faced towards each other, but they also faced the walls, which means they kind of stood on an angle where they were sort of facing each other somewhat, but also are sort of a little bit facing away. It's like if you were talking to somebody, you're sitting across from them, but instead of sitting directly across, you're sitting sort of to the side, and you're looking at them, but you're kind of also sort of facing towards the room. So that's, you know, also, uh, that, that, that's how one of the opinions in the Gemara explains the positioning of the Kruvim. Now, this seems like a little bit of a random debate. Let's see why this is important. Um, so here, according to the opinion who says they were, that they were facing a little bit towards each other, a little bit towards the room, so the, that opinion cannot explain the same idea that it can't say, well, what, what's, the, what's the logic of that? It's because there's times when B'nai Israel are in harmony with Hashem and times when they're not. That wouldn't make sense here because, as he says, the cave unto Iker Asiyas Kruvim Pneim Labayas, since the actual, uh, the intentional structure of the Kruvim was that they're facing the actual walls of the, of the room, at least somewhat, it wouldn't make sense for them to have been intentionally designed like that, that their main positioning would be a position that reflects a, a um, uh, dissonance or, or separation between them and Hashem. In other words, if the, if the Kruvim are supposed to be designed, according to this opinion, they're supposed to be designed in such a way that they actually are facing partially away from each other. So you can't say now that that was done because that when they were facing away from each other, that reflects their distance from Hashem. It wouldn't make sense to intentionally structure the Kruvim in such a way that actually means that they're that the Israel are out of harmony with Hashem. So he says, um, 
Vechen Kasvu Tosvos Sham, that's also one of the other commentaries there, Tosvos also says, Demistama hem idum trilo lefi mashahayu osin of Tanisham Makom. So it said that the, it would make more sense to say that the, the initial positioning of the Kruvim would be in such a position that it reflects the status quo of B'nai Israel actually uh, operating in harmony with Hashem. So to then say that, that, that when they're facing away from each other, it means they're out of harmony, wouldn't fit according to this opinion. And, and, even, and in addition to that, there's still also just an int- intrinsic problem now, which is that when the text says that they were facing slightly towards the walls, or that they were facing the walls, because remember, there were two texts. One says they face each other, one says they face the walls, and then this opinion, the second opinion that we saw says, what does that mean? It means they face kind of towards each other, but also towards the walls. So he says that he's, so the Nefesh says it's also an intrinsically strange thing that the second text, which was written about the Kruvim that were designed in the time of Shlomo HaMelech, so, which is later than the first Kruvim that were designed in the desert in the story of, of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim in the Chumash, so it's a little bit strange that Shlomo designed the Kruvim that he designed to intentionally face towards the walls of the building. Why would he do that? So it's kind of a random way to position them, given that A, the original ones face each other, and B, the, the not facing each other implies a distance from Hashem and sort of like a non-involvement in Hashem. Why would he ever do that? Okay. So he writes, This is like what it says in the Gemara in Maseches Brachos. So it writes there, So we have a teaching there. So there, the Torah, the Torah in, um, in Parshas Ekev, which is in Sefer Dvarim, so that's the last book of the Chumash, says, there's a long paragraph there talking about if B'nai Yisrael operates in harmony with Hashem, and they are constantly bringing more Hashem consciousness into the world, and they're, they're living in a way that really expresses that, so then there's going to be all kinds of things that are going to happen. Um, and the, so this teaching goes on to, so quotes this Pasuk, one of the, this line, which says, V'asafta de'ganecha, you're going to collect and bring in all of your grain. So that's talking about it's going to be uh, financial success, agricultural success. We'll have a lot of grain that we'll be collecting and harvesting and bringing in. So it says, So the teaching goes on to say, well, we have a line also later on which says that the Torah should never leave your mouth. In other words, you have to always be learning the Torah. The Torah here means um, the map of, of existence and reality includes the Chumash and the Talmud and all the halacha lifestyle ways of actually expressing the concepts that are intrinsic in that, um, and the Medrash and all the, and the Zohar, all these concepts that are essentially the underlying spiritual maps of existence, and then the halachic works in the Talmud that express that describe how to actually live those things practically. So that's supposed to never leave your mouth. You're supposed to always be thinking about those things and talking about them. So it says, so the question is, that the teaching here says, is it possible this is really going to be true? Like that the way that it's written, in other words, that it's never going to leave your mouth? Talmud Lomar, we have this other, this other teaching which says, this line in the Torah, that you're going to be collecting your grain, which seems to imply, well, you have to also spend time you know, taking care of your life. You've got to make money, or, or you have to harvest your grain, or you have to take care of whatever businesses you're running. So in other words, you see the Torah explicitly states you're supposed to actually spend time uh, investing in your own well-being, your physical well-being, and your financial well-being. And so the Gemara says, so how do you resolve these two lines? One says you're supposed to never stop learning the Torah. One says you're supposed to be collecting your grain. So the Gemara first quotes Rabbi Ishmael, which says, Hanheg bahen minhag derch eretz. You should operate in, this, in these things, in terms of your financial things. Sorry, you should operate in terms of your, your learning of Torah, what's called minhag derech eretz. In other words, the way of the world. So that seems to mean sort of something like, well, you're supposed to learn Torah all the time, but you're supposed to do it in a context that is sort of like 
in harmony with the physical needs of the world. The way the world works is that human, human bodies need shelter, they need food, they need ex exercise. So you're supposed to spend time uh, investing in those things as sort of like a framework for the Torah, which is why the line says, Hanheg Bahen, operate with them, which means the Torah, Min Hagderech Eretz, sort of like the way of life that is the normal way of life in the physical world. So that's Rabbi Ishmael's opinion. Now we have a second uh, opinion here in this discussion. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Omer, uh, so this is somebody named Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Shimon, he says, Efshar Adam Choresh Torah So he says, well, is it possible that a person will now spend time plowing a field and planting in a field and, and tending to the, to the different projects that he's growing and developing? So if he does that, Torah what's going to be with the Torah? In other words, don't try to make it like it's just this simple thing, like, well, you're just going to harvest the grain. You've got to do the things you need to do to stay physically alive. So he's like, that's, that's the kind of thing which is going to become a very long, drawn-out process. There's a lot of things to invest in in that way. And if you do that, so what's going to happen with the Torah? You're not going to learn the Torah. So Rabbi Shemarichai says, so therefore, how do you resolve these two psukim, these two lines? One line says, you got to learn Torah all the time, and you should never let it leave your mouth. One line says, you're collecting your grain. So he says, so what does that mean? He writes, The time when B'nai Yisrael are actually operating within, within Hashem's will, they are actually um, acting in harmony with true truth and being and spreading the truth of who Hashem is into the world. So then that means all their malacha, the things that they, their projects and their, the things that, they're, that they need in order to physically survive will be taken care of by other people. In other words, they'll have people who work for them and they will be able to learn. So they can, they can learn Torah and they can spread the knowledge of consciousness, which again, you have to understand the, the role of B'nai Yisrael as a group, this family of Yisrael, this person in the Chumash who is in you know, the, fir the first book of the Torah. So the role of this family essentially was to act, act and operate on the family level, which we can also call at this point the national level, to sort of be a conduit for larger consciousness into the world. And while there's lots and lots and lots of cousins and other families in the world who are who are operating sometimes in harmony with Hashem, sometimes not in harmony with Hashem. So our role as a family is to bring more and more and more Hashem consciousness into the larger channels of existence. And so as that's what we're here to do, so what we're saying here is that if we if we are operating in that way and we're doing that properly, then we would have people who would sort of take care of the the more um, in, inside the physical side of the network and make sure that there's enough food and, and resources to kind of um, sustain our role as the people who are bringing those teachings into the world. So if we're doing that properly and we're really bringing in teachings of Hashem into the world, then Rabbi Shon Baruchai says that means that then we would have other people who would work for us who would take care of the, the grain harvesting and things like that, which is then the meaning of the Pasuk Ve'asafta De'ganecha. And then, so now that Rechaim Velezhner wants to analyze this, because there's a few things about this that are a little bit strange, and could be you're already thinking of some of them. So if you are wondering about some of what I just said, then you are probably in good company. So he says, this, is a, this seems a little strange, because now what it means is that when the text says the phrase Ve'asafta De'ganecha, so... Um, that sounds like it's now, according to Rabbi Yochai, the context of that, of that line is, when B'nai Yisrael are not actually operating the way they're supposed to be in the world. In other words, they're now not expressing Hashem's will. So that's a little strange. Why? Earlier in the paragraph about that, so it was written earlier in this paragraph, Said and if it will be, if you listen and you actually follow through 
on my ways of life, the, the practical, physical ways of expressing who I am into the world, to sort of have ahava for Hashem, and to, and to, to do his avoda, which you have to analyze what that is also more carefully. The, it means here it's referring to the internal alignment where there is genuine interest and connection between you and Hashem. If you do all those things, and about that, that context, what's written, then you'll subsequently collect your grain. In other words, if you want to suggest that the line is referring to a context where B'nai Israel is not doing their own their own work, so sorry, B'nai Israel is is doing their own work. So let's let's just clarify again. According to Rishon Yochai, so the line Ganecha is referring to a context in which B'nai Israel is not following the will of Hashem. So if they're not living out what it means to be a member of B'nai Israel, then Ganecha, you as an individual have to actually do your own work. You'll have to collect your own grain. You'll have, in other words, what it means is you'll become very busy with your with taking care of your physical body. You'll have all kinds of physical body problems that require greater care, greater investment, and therefore you'll have less time to learn Torah. So what Rishim Bar Yochai is saying is there's really two different ideas. The Torah, the text says, "Leimush sefer haTorah as You should you should never stop learning the Torah. And then it also says you have to collect your grain. So Rishon Baruchai says, in situations where you follow what Hashem says, you'll never let the Torah leave your mouth, and then other people will collect the grain for you. And in situations where you're not following Hashem's will, then you'll have to collect the grain yourself, which is an analogy for you'll have to start taking care of your own body in ways that become very encompassing and very expansive. So the Nefeshachayim is bothered. He, just say, he says, he's like, that's a little strange because the line of Asaf Ganecha, which according to Rishon Baruchai now, is referring to a context in which you are not following Hashem, and you are sort of now forced to take care of your body yourself, instead of having somebody work for you to take care of all the financial needs. So that's strange, because the paragraph where that line shows up, is referring to a situation where you are actually following Hashem's will. So now that one phrase, is inside of the paragraph in a very, very strange way. It doesn't really fit there in that way. So that's the question he's asking. We're going to pick up with that question in the next episode. I hope that was relatively clear. And again, that we're going to have to expand very carefully on what exactly Torah is here and how the Torah is designed to sort of operate. And it's going to really start to explain to us what the Kruvim are and how this all sort of fits together into the larger framework of the network that we've been discussing until now. Hope you enjoyed that. Looking forward to seeing you in the next episode.